This is Nermukta breaking the spell. Welcome to Nirmukta Radio. In this episode, I interviewed Blair Scott of the North Alabama Freethought Association and the affiliate director of American Atheists. Blair has been one of the most prominent atheist activists in America and is recognized as a model activist for his work in promoting atheist and freethought causes both online and off. Hi, Blair. Thanks for joining us here on Nirmukta Radio. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us, uh, how did you come to be an atheist? Have you always been one? Yeah, that's kind of a tricky question. There's, there's never really kind of an overnight experience where you go, aha, I'm an atheist, you know, and you wake up one morning and make that decision. I've kind of questioned all my life. Uh, between the sixth and seventh grade, I kind of gave up on my parents' religion and, and explored on my own. At the time, I, I felt there was something wrong with me. It was like, what didn't I get? What was wrong with me? You know, my, my family was Christian. My friends were Christian. My neighbors were Christian. So why was I having a hard time getting it? I mean, I really honestly tried to believe and, and studied and went to different churches. And finally, that summer, I just gave up and uh, just accepted that there was something wrong with me. But it wasn't until my late teens that I even first heard the word atheist. And I was like, aha, that's what I am. But even then, it was, it was still, what's wrong with me? Why don't I get it? You know, because atheist was a bad word, you know. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing. And it probably wasn't until I was, oh, I'd say 20, that I realized that it was a good thing. And that's when I started really studying. That's when I went overseas. Um, I spent time in, in Italy, <clears throat> lived in Italy for five and a half years and explored all over Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. I visited Christian and Jewish sites and Muslim sites and, and uh, you know, read the Bible several times, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, etc. And that's when I realized that they're all hokey and that it wasn't just Christianity. It was all the religions and that atheist didn't mean I didn't believe in the Christian God. It meant I didn't believe in any of the gods. That's, so that's when I, I, I accepted what I was and realized that atheist was a good thing, not a bad thing. And once I got out of the Navy, that's when I got involved in activism. You started pretty early, 6th, 7th grade. That's pretty young. I look at it this way. I mean, any kid, if you were to actually set them down and have them read the Bible and not the children's version of the Bible, the children's Bible stories that you see, where all the death and destruction is taken out of like Noah's flood and all the bad things are taken out of the story of Garden of Eden. You know, my children were five years old when we read Genesis. And my daughter being five years old was like, well, why is God looking for Adam and Eve? He's supposed to be all knowing. Why is he calling for them? Why can't he find them? I mean, my daughter got it. And then my other daughter's like, after he throws them out and gives woman, you know, pain at birth and, and the original sin comes in and the sins of the fathers, you know, shall be extended, all this stuff. She goes, well, that was inappropriate behavior. <laughs> I mean, so a five-year-old can get it right. if you let them read the whole thing. I mean, there, I, there's a reason they have children's Bible stories, you know, to take out all that bad stuff. The church I attended in, in Omaha was actually just on the outskirts of the Air Force Base there, off at Air Force Base, and it was a little bitty farmer's church, you know, one of those cute, white, Presbyterian, 
you know, miniature steeple, the classic country church that you see in like every photo. And it was, and I, and I, to be honest, I have a lot of good memories from there and, and good times and experiences, but those good times and experiences are related to the people and not the religion. Right. right. It was about more about the community, the feeling of, you know, being socially included in uh, a group activity and exactly. That sort of thing, yeah. exactly. And that's why that is so important for atheists as well. Fellowship is not a religious word. It's it's very you know it's very important for for atheists to have that social outlet as well and to be able to get together and enjoy the same things that religious people would in a church and that that sense of fellowship and community and, and belonging to a group that that gets you that understands you that you can speak out and say what you want to say without worrying about offending somebody that's important for people. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Definitely. So you spent some time in the Navy. What was that like as an atheist? My Navy time was truly an adventure. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I originally joined just to get the GI Bill. I fell in love with it. I re-enlisted, was ready to do the full 20 years. But I got uh, in an accident and down in Daytona, Florida that messed up my back and knee, and I was medically discharged just before my 10-year mark. But I was ready to do the full 20. As far as the religious aspect of it, when I first got in, it wasn't that bad. I mean, you could definitely feel the underlying religiosity of, of a lot of the commanders and the troops. Um, I remember when, when I was in boot camp, uh, the group Kansas came and performed at, at the base uh, over Christmas, because I was there December, January, and February. And Kansas, uh, who, who of course is famous for the song Wayward Son, they became a Christian group. And they were forming on military bases as a Christian group. Attendance was mandatory, and I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go see a Christian rock show. That's you, you can't make me see a Christian rock show. And so finally my company commander agreed to let me stay in the barracks, but I had to clean it. So I was punished for not going to the Christian rock show. If you didn't go to church on Sundays, you stayed behind and you cleaned the barracks. You were punished for not going to church. Now, of course, they didn't see that as punishment. They saw church as a, as a privilege. You got out of the barracks and were able to go and, and do something. I'm like, well, okay, well, instead of me going to church, let me go to the arcade and play video games. That, that's my religion. You know? <laughs> I remember when um, when I got my dog tags, you know, they asked what religion, and I said, uh, I said none. He says, well, we don't have a none. I said, well, what about atheists? He says, we don't have atheists. He says, I can put no religious preference on there. Or they abbreviated no rel pref or NRP. And I said, well, what the heck does that mean? That just means, you know, you can call anybody. <laughs> He's like, here's somebody with no religious preference. Uh, the Catholic will do. Bring over the priest. You know, oh, actually, bring that minister. Actually, the imam will work just fine. Bring him over. And he, he asked me, the petty officer, he asked me, said, uh, well, if you're shot on the battlefield, who do you want us to call? And I'm like, how about a freaking medic? Can you put medic <laughs> on religious preference? I'm like, you're going to call the priest? No, call the medic. So he got a good chuckle out of it, and he said, uh, no religious preference it is. And then uh, about six years later, they actually changed it. You could get atheist on your dog tag. I'm glad that happened. <laughs> I'll give you a good example of the religious nature of, of the Navy. Uh, the captain on my first ship was just an amazing guy. Me and him had a really good working relationship. He never called me Petty after Scott. He always called me Scotty. You know, if he had an issue with radio, I was the guy he came to and talked to. He never went to my combo. My combo was an idiot. He was a supply guy pretending to be a comm officer. And then the comm officer would always send him to me anyways, even if he did go. Well, he did my reenlistment, and uh, he invited the pastor, or the chaplain up, 
And I told him that I didn't want the chaplain there. And he was like, well, why? And I said, well, sir, it's, you know, no disrespect, but it's my reenlistment, not yours. And uh, so he sent the chaplain away and did the reenlistment. And after that, I was never called Scotty. He always called me Petty after Scott and always went to Macomo. Wow. And, you know, it was just a huge slap in the face that he would disrespect our personal relationship that we had, our personal working relationship, but disrespect the relationship we had on a professional level as well because I didn't believe. But there are some good stories there too. I mean, I had a chaplain on my second command that every night, you know, in the evening prayers was Jesus, 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 Jesus. And I went and talked to him and I said, I said, sir, I said, you know, as a chaplain, your job is to help accommodate all religious beliefs. If there are Muslims on board, it's your job to give them a place to worship, to give them prayer rugs, and, and etc. If there are Buddhists on board, it's your job to make sure they have the supplies needed to do that. And I, and I said, there in my radio shack alone, I have a Buddhist, two Wiccans, several atheists, you know, some Catholics, a Muslim, you know, a Hindu. This is just in my shack alone. Now I'll propagate that out to the entire ship. And to his credit. Not only did he lay back on the Jesus references in the evening prayers, but he also asked re representatives of those other religions to give evening prayers as well. And once a month, I got to do a secular invocation over the YMC. So there are good stories there as well. It's not all bad. You know, some of the chaplains get it. Sometimes you had to remind them, but they got it. <laughs> Blair, I'd like to talk to you about your activism. How did you first get involved when you got back from the Navy and... Uh, you know, how did you start with your activism? Was it local for at first? How did you eventually get uh, involved with the American atheists? Well, obviously, I was doing some activism in the Navy. But when I got out of the Navy, and uh, I went back to Mobile, Alabama, because that's where my parents were living, and I wanted my kids to be close to their grandparents, it started off with a simple letter to the Mobile Press Register, the newspaper down there. The, uh, they were thinking about bringing a Bible school or Bible class into the schools in Mobile. And my letter didn't mention the word atheist. It just basically said, is this really what the Christian community wants? Do you really want to do this? Or do you really want to make the Bible nothing more than a piece of literature equivalent to Moby Dick or Gone with the Wind? You know, is that really what you want? You know, and uh, man, all hell broke loose from that. There was uh, just some nasty comments in the sound off section. It's it's where you call in and do a voicemail at the newspaper and leave a quick comment, and then they dictate it to the side column in the opinion piece. There were letters for weeks just chastising and denigrating me, and finally I was like, you know, the hell with these people. <laughs> There's got to be others out there like me, so I formed a local group in Mobile, the Mobile Atheists and Skeptics Alliance. I had about six people join. I couldn't get people to come in and, and really be involved in it. And finally, someone was like, well, it's the word atheist. Down here in the Bible Belt, we're afraid of that word. And we're not going to join an organization that has the word in it, even though we are. I said, okay, it's, you know, fine, so be it. So I changed it to the Mobile Area Free Thought Association. And after that, membership took off, and the newspaper and local TV was willing to talk to me because they didn't have the word atheist in it. It was just crazy. Um... And I got involved with American Atheists back then, started working with them, doing protests and demonstrations, and then I became the Alabama State Director in 2000, or was it 2001? Yeah, 2000. So this is actually my 10th year as Alabama State Director. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about your involvement with uh, American Atheists. 
But since many of our listeners are not from uh, the U.S., can you first tell us exactly what uh, American Atheist is? Yeah, absolutely. American Atheist was was founded by Madeline Murray O'Hare. She was the the lady responsible for the 1963 Supreme Court decision that took the Bible reading and prayer out of public schools in the United States. Her and two other cases around the United States, but all three of them were joined together and brought to the Supreme Court at the same time. And she founded the organization down in Texas. Later, she was uh, kidnapped and murdered. Her and her granddaughter and grandson were ki- our son were kidnapped and murdered by one of their employees, and you know who stole some gold and money from them. Mm-hmm. He was later arrested and, and is serving his time now. Post that, the Senate was brought up to New Jersey, and it, and it kind of took on a new life. And the, the main purpose of American Atheists at this point as a national organization is really three aims and purposes. One is in, to maintain the separation of church and state, obviously. Uh, two is to ensure the civil rights of all non-theists, regardless of what title or label they use. And the third one is to ensure true freedom of religion, which means freedom from religion. And those are our three main goals, and we do that through education activism, lawsuits if necessary, try to get the word out and get people to understand. Uh, we used to have a, a separate lobbying political action committee called GAMPAC. That's no longer what we've done is we've joined forces with the Secular Coalition for America, which is a political action committee, or, or you know, lobbying group. So that's who we use now. We got rid of GAMPAC. So we're trying to join forces uh, with other groups where we can and and do things mutually together. There's, obviously, there's going to be competition with other groups, but it shouldn't be cutthroat. We need to be working together. And American Atheists in the past year or so has, has taken that tact where we're working with groups more and becoming more aware of what's going on with the other groups in order to have a cohesive front, if you will, nationally and locally. What is your official role at, at American Atheists? Yeah, that's, that's just one of my roles. I've, I've actually got a couple roles. I'm the National Affiliate Director, the Alabama State Director, the uh, so, Social Networking Coordinator, and I'm also a staff writer for the American Atheist Magazine now. The, as the National Affiliate Director, my job is to reach out to local groups and, and get them to affiliate with American Atheists. And affiliates are, are not anything formal. It basically means you have a friendship with American Atheists. We help you. You help us if we can. Give advice if you want it. Uh, groups remain completely autonomous. You know, I send them goodie bags and free magazines and stuff like that. It's just a way of getting groups to be recognized at the national level more than anything. We advertise any special events they have and put them in a the magazine. As the Alabama State Director, my job is to specifically look out for issues in the state of Alabama and take care of any discrimination, separation issues, harassment, or you know, any local lawsuits that may come up. And as the social networking coordinator, it's my job to keep track of Twitter, MySpace, Facebook, uh, Atheist Nexus, and represent American Atheists there as the official organization. And then as a staff writer, I just I write articles for the American Atheist magazine. There is a strong tradition of rationalist thinking in India, and there is some level of organization. One of the organizations that does this sort of work is the Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations. Uh, this is an umbrella group that has over like 60 affiliated organizations under it. What FIRA really does is on-ground activism, mostly done in the rural parts of the country. It's very important work in a country like India. Right. What this typically involves is uh, demonstrations of uh, the same tricks that the conmen and the tricksters use to show that there is no actual magic there. You know, uh, So this sort of activism might 
work for India and may not apply to the American context. My question is just, American atheists do any such direct on-ground activism? We do do demonstrations and protests where needed. Um, we do letter writing campaigns. We put out action alerts for local people to get involved because it's very important that the local people get involved, you know, so that you have not just a national group. You know, they tend to, local politics, when, when we get involved as a national group, you know, tend to look at us as those interfering outsiders, if you will. So we definitely try to get local people involved and get boots on the ground. <clears throat> when it comes to to stuff like, you know, going in and pretending to be the God man and then showing everybody how you, you did the trick, that's, you're right, that's very hard to do here. I mean, there are instances of that. We, you know, there are podcasts, there are television shows. Uh, Penn and Teller's show, Bullshit on Showtime, is probably one of the best ones. They're really good at exposing some of that stuff. But uh, the, the problem then is, how do you get people to watch that? How do you get people to go on YouTube and see how the magic trick is done? And how do you get people to show up and, and see when they have a fake psychic get on stage and show everybody how he did the tricks and how he fooled everybody. Because people, I've seen shows where the psychic has gone in and fooled everybody and then afterwards said, oh, by the way, I'm not a real psychic. This is how I did it. And people still walk out going, oh, it was great. You know, he had everything just right. And I'm like, did you miss the part where he said he wasn't a real psychic? <laughs> did you miss that? Were you asleep then? It, it, so it's a matter of you just got to be persistent is really what it boils down to. I mean, American Atheist has been at this for 50 years now. I don't, know, I don't think it's been quite 50 years, maybe 50 years. And, and you know, look, progress is being made, obviously. Right. We're not being burned at the stake anymore. We're not being incarcerated. McCarthy is gone. You know, so progress is definitely being made. But it's slow, tedious work, and a lot of people burn out easily. You have to maintain your motivation and you have to be patient when you're involved in this type of activism. You're not going to change the world overnight. It's, it's a great quote by uh, Depeche Mode, which is, you can't change the world, but you can change the facts. And when you change the facts, you change points of view. And when you change points of view, you can change a vote. And when you change a vote, you can change the world. You're listening to Nirmokta Radio. This is Ajita Kamal talking to atheist activist Blair Scott. Many things that apply here in America will not apply in India, but some things are universal, especially like in the modern globalized culture. So what could you tell us about the management structure of American atheists uh, so that we might be able to learn something and apply some of these methods that you use? Well, the management structure for American atheists is we have a board and we have a president, and we have vice presidents. The president has some basic executive decision capability, which means he can make certain decisions without going to the board. But at any time, the board has the ability to override any decision he makes by vote. Uh, there are some issues he has to go to the board with. So he, he's semi-autonomous in his ability to make decisions, depending on the decision that needs to be made. There are other groups, though, that have one guy running the whole thing, and they refer to themselves as a benevolent dictatorship. And that works in some areas as well. I think it really depends on the context of your group and where you're at and how big the group is. I think the larger a group gets, the more organized the management needs to be. You know, it doesn't matter what your management structure is. If you don't have quality leaders, then the management structure is just, it's, it's really irrelevant at that point. You have to have somebody that can lead. You have to have somebody that... <sighs> I hate to use the word charismatic, but 
you know, they have to be able to inspire people. They have to be able to make quick decisions. They have to be able to look at all the data and come up with the right decision. And more importantly than anything else, they have to be willing to admit when they're wrong and, and move on. You know, say, okay, look, I was wrong. Let's come up with another idea. Let's approach this differently. You know, I, I, I can take somebody being wrong. If somebody comes up to me and says, look, I was wrong, I'll be like, okay, well, let's fix it then. But don't try to say you weren't and Jimmy around. It's not, man, that ear just irritates people. So there's, there's so many leadership skills that are necessary uh, to properly run a group and to get people to follow that group. For example, here on the local level, the local group, we have pretty much a benevolent dictatorship, but with the ability of the local assistant organizers to intervene and, and to put their, their, their piece in, so to speak. And, you know, there's a lot of issues where we'll take a vote. But here's one of the problems that we run into a lot when, when discussing boards with people. You have an issue that comes up, and the board puts it to a vote and discusses it, and they debate it, and they debate it, and they debate it, and they finally put it up to a vote. Well, by the time they vote, that issue's long gone. The, acting to it now would be irrelevant, which is why it's so important that the president have the ability to make some executive decisions. To be able to bypass the board and say, okay, an issue has come up. We've got to take action on this now. We don't have time for the next board meeting in three weeks. It's got to be acted on now. And so a group that, that at least here in the United States, that has a board with voting power, but a president with the ability to make executive decisions for stuff that comes up before the next board meeting or before they can debate it, those tend to be the more successful groups when it comes to getting involved in activism. Now, whether they're successful or not in increasing membership and all that, I, I have no way of telling without looking at everybody's books. But those groups tend to be more successful when it comes to getting involved in activism stuff. But if you, it's, it's, no, 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 there's a point I'm trying to make is that it's, it's very easy for a board to get bogged down in the details and let an issue just slip by. One of the committee members at Nirmokta brought this up. He used the phrase analysis paralysis to, to explain what, how this happens. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I agree with you that that's definitely a concern that we've had as well. And we have to try to balance that with reaching out to, you know, all these different groups across uh, the country. And what we're trying to do is we're offering you the services that having a, an organized free thought movement can offer, like things like connecting you to a media network and uh, connecting you with other parts of the country where people might be able to help you. You might have access to activists, access to academics, national recognition for things that local organizations are doing. Uh, sort of the same kind of things that you basically do in your role as affiliate director at American Atheists. Right. I mean, you're almost describing the affiliate program verbatim, the way it works. And, and that's the key to, to building that trust with the local groups is I emphasize over and over and over again, you remain completely autonomous. We don't try to, you know, you don't have to adapt our bylaws. You don't have to adapt our leadership structure. You don't even have to do what I tell you. You don't, if I send you an email about an action alert and you disagree and think we should do it another way, then, then ignore it and do something else. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're just here to coordinate on a national level, send you the information, and you decide if you want to do something with it. And if you want to work with us directly, call me and we'll work on it. And we'll, and we'll arrange something and we'll help you advertise and get things going. That trust issue is key. And it's, it's very hard sometimes to, to develop that trust issue because people are afraid that you're going to take over their organization. So you have to kind of, 
you know, egg walk around the ego, if you will, <laughs> and make sure they understand that, look, I'm not trying to take over. You remain autonomous. It's your group. It will always be your group. One of the things that we intend on doing when we establish the organization is to expand the reach of FIRA, the Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations, to reach out to a younger demographic. A lot of the orga- affiliated organizations in India, the average age tends to be a little above the you know average age of the general population. Usually the youth are very underrepresented. I'm not sure if this is the same trend that you see in the U.S. Historically, groups have tended to be male over the age of 40. That's slowly started to change. Um, the internet has a lot to play with that. But the main thing that we noticed here locally, we were getting, you know, the, the older crowd, is we adjusted some of our social gatherings to match the, the younger crowd. Uh, for example, we started a coffee social at a coffee shop, and that drew in a lot of the younger people. Uh, you know, younger people tend to not want to go to a lecture and would rather go to a gathering. I, I give it, I won't mention the name of the group, but I, I went to this group, and they were notorious for holding, I, I guess I'll call it a wine and cheese party, okay, just for posterity's sake. And what they got was wine and cheese people. And they wanted to know where the college kids were. And I said, well, maybe you should throw a kegger. <laughs> and I didn't mean literally a kegger. I mean, you know, something that appeals to the, the college kids. And, and so you have to find a way to do that. And look, it, it varies from demographic to demographic. When I was in Mobile, I held my meetings on the weekend and I got nobody. I just could not compete for the college kids with all the stuff that was going on downtown at Dauphin Street with the clubs and the bars and the events. I couldn't compete with that. I changed my venue to a venue right across the street from the college, and I made it Tuesday night, and I got 40 college kids showing up. But here in Huntsville... I can't do that. If I were to do something on a Tuesday, I'd get hardly anybody because the college kids are too busy on the weekdays. But on the weekends, there's nothing to compete with. I hold my events on the weekends, and I get 40 to 50 people at each event. The demographics and what's going on in your city and what you're competing with have to be taken into consideration. If the, if, if the college kids are going to, let's say, Soho to visit the clubs, you're not going to compete with that. But if you can find a coffee shop in Soho and have your meeting two hours before the clubs open, well, then maybe they'll go there first before they go to the clubs. You're saying basically reach them out on their own turf, like get, go where exactly. they are, right? Like fish exactly. where the fish are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, that, and that's what you got to do. And look, that group that I was talking about, they took it to heart. They, they tried a different venue approach. Um, they went and they advertised at the local college, and now they're about 50% college students. So it does work. You have to appeal to the demographic you're searching for. Um, you know, if you, if you want families to get involved, you have to have something that is family friendly. You know, kids don't. You know, parents don't want to drag their kids to a movie night or to a lecture. But if you throw a monthly picnic, we have a monthly picnic throughout the year during the warm months. And that's when the families and kids show up and we get out and play football and frisbee and have a great time. And then we sit at the picnic tables and we talk about free thought and we talk about issues and politics. And, and it gives the parents that normally can't attend the other events, it gives them an outlet to communicate with people that are like-minded. I want to go back a little bit to something that you mentioned briefly when I brought up reaching out to a younger demographic and I was talking about the ratio. You, you, you brought up the sex ratio as well and you, you pointed out how these groups tend to be more male and 
that is certainly an issue that we have in India. In my experience, three, four years being an activist, I've noticed there are fewer women who come out as atheists and there are fewer women than men who are directly involved. But to me, it seems most evident that there are very few there are very few female atheists who are actively engaged in creating a, a culture of atheism in India. It, it used to mostly. Uh, we're definitely seeing that trend come to a head. And look, there's there's women in you know that are leading some of the major organizations. You, you know, you have Margaret Downey, Ellen Johnson, Laurie Lemon Brown, Annie Laurie Gaylor, you know, just to name a few. Uh, you know, so there there are leading atheist women in the movement. As far as the local organizations, I, I have seen an increase in, in women attending in, in the groups, which of course is a great, great thing for all those single atheist guys out there who have for years been asking me, Blair, where are all the single atheist women? And I've always had to go, oh, <laughs> so now I can say, well, actually, they're at your local group. And, and one of the things that I've been doing on Facebook um, in the last few months is going out of my way to promote female atheists. Um, when I find female atheist blogs, I put a link up to them so that people can go and visit them because I think it's important for the females to be involved in the movement. It, look, there's a lot of hypotheses out there, all of them controversial as to why women are not so involved or in the free thought movement or why women are less likely to be atheists than men. To me, it seems more likely that, you know, they're just not in as much involved when it comes to the activism. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's, you know, as one uh, anthropologist said or psychologist or whatever he was, you know, he, he was, he got in a lot of trouble for it. I wish I could remember his name, but he said that the reason women were not in the free thought community as much is because they tend to be more emotional than men and that they tend to latch on to religion easier. And one of the things he pointed to was that, for example, once a woman gets married and has children, she tends to lean more Republican than Democrat, where a liberal college student, once she gets married and has kids, is suddenly voting you know, with the Republican Party. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know the answer. I mean, like I said, there's there's a tons of tons of hypotheses out there. All of them controversial. And what the answer is, I I don't know. All I do know is that we are seeing more and more women in the United States getting involved in the movement. That the group here in Huntsville is almost 50% female. So it's definitely improving. But again, one of the things that the group here in Huntsville has done has made sure we've gone out of our way to make at least some meetings and some topics appeal to the female part of the population. It, it might just be that women are not engaging as much in the activism because, because most of these organizations are dominated by men. And uh, this is a common thing, not just for atheist groups. Most organizations in general are dominated by men. And so because men have dominated these institutions for so long, they, they have, the way things are done tend to be more you know, male-centric, male they tend to appeal more to the uh, aesthetics, if you will, of how men work, uh, how the male brain works, so to speak. In fact, in my experience, I don't think I've ever come across any, like, I've come across, we have many bloggers in India who are atheists, you know, who write atheist blogs, but I haven't come across any run written by uh, a woman, although there are many other, on other subjects, there are many blogs that are written by women. So if, but I, I agree that if we do find these blogs, or, or maybe we should look harder, but, you know, the, the point is that we should encourage these people, we should promote them, we should give them more coverage. Right now, we don't have the, the environment 
that allows women atheists and women free thinkers to come out and and be as active as the men are being even though you know that's the men really aren't being as active as they should be but that tells you a lot more about you know how much worse it is for a woman to to be able to to assert herself in in this current environment so having women come into the group and and, and be more involved that would in, in fact that would be such a motivating thing for many of the men in the movement because you know it sort of sort of feels like an old boys club after a while just it doesn't feel like a real community with a, a more even ratio right i always <laughs> i always feel bad for the first woman that comes into a group you know you know she, she walks in and here's this man on the organization and all of them are like hello it's like ooh, female atheist welcome <laughs> and and that's and i think that's important that that any group that has a lot of men in it that they make a conscious effort to avoid that. You know, don't oogle and drool, please. You know, let's just, you know, I understand you haven't seen an atheist woman in 10 years. I get it. You know, I understand your biology's kicking in overdrive. You know, I get it. But let's control ourselves. You know, it's just a girl. It's, you know, you see him all day at work, you know. So it's, yeah, I I can I can understand and and to be honest that maybe that maybe that plays a part of the hesitation of, of some women showing up is they don't want to be the only woman. Right. But you know it's here in the local group out of the six people that organize and, and assist and organize the organization, four of them are women. This is Ajita Kamal and I'm talking to activist Blair Scott here on Nirmokta Radio. Since we don't have a, a visible a movement, we don't have a visible community, we feel that that might actually be something that has prevented atheism from, or not just atheism, free thought in general, from being uh, recognized in the public sphere in India. Here in the U.S., you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the visibility of atheists has increased. Now, I'm wondering if, you know, if you think that just us being out there and doing things together as a group doesn't have to be, you know, anti-religion activism. It could just be us being together and, you know, letting, allowing people to see us. There are things that bring us together as well that offer us community. So, you know, would you say that these things are actually just as important or even more important when it comes to promoting our agenda in the general public sphere? I would say that at a minimum, they are equally important. When... When we go and do our picnics and we do any type of outdoor event or go on a tour or, or do anything, we have a sign that says has the name of the group. And there are many times that people off the street will come over and join us. They're like, wow, I had no idea there was a free thought community here. I mean, it, it's incredibly effective in bringing new people in and getting the word out and letting people know that you exist. I, mean, I, I, I wish I could count the number of people that have joined us because they saw us out in town. They saw us doing something. They saw the sign that says Adopt a Mile, North Alabama Free Thought Association, or you know, the big NAFA sign that we have up at Montesano when we go on the picnic. There's a lot of people that'll see it and, and come and join us. Or we'll go on camping trips twice a year and we post the big NAFA sign out there. And we've had people drive by and come back to the campsite and go, There's a free thought group here? Really? That's so cool. <laughs> and sit and talk with us around the campfire for hours. And, and then start showing up at the meetings afterwards so that the ability to put yourself out there in the public sphere is is very important. And, and whether that's through charity or through events 
or through um, sponsoring a table at a local carnival or something, whatever it is, all that helps. And it brings attention to the organization. And a lot of times the media gets involved as well. And I cannot emphasize how important it is to have a good relationship with your local religion editor at your local newspaper. That's incredibly important because they'll they'll do write-ups on the group and they'll put your events in the newspaper if you got a good relationship with them. You know, not every religion editor is going to appreciate it. Some of them are just, you know, oh, I don't want anything to do with you atheists, you know. Well, fine, whatever. Then you're not a very good editor, are you? But most most religion editors want their, you know, religion section or faith and value section, whatever they call it. They want it to be more diverse and include opposing views if they're a good editor. Finally, I'd like to ask you about your online work. Are there any any particular strategies or tricks that you've learned in trying to promote atheism online? Can you help us in understanding how we can approach building a strong community of Indian atheists online? Well, one of the one of the things I do, um, especially on Facebook, is I don't just promote one group. I promote as many groups as I can. Um, I, I try to make sure that you know, because the main goal. Look, let's be honest here, okay? Obviously, I support my affiliates, but the main thing is just getting somebody involved in a group. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'm looking for a group in Michigan, I can go, well, yes, the Michigan atheists are right there next to you, but it's an hour and a half drive. Too bad, so sad, drive the hour and a half. Or I can say, well, look, there's an hour and a half away as our affiliate, the Michigan atheists, but in Ann Arbor, where you live, there's a group right next to you that's not an affiliate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them both. And, and so no matter who comes to me with what question, I go out of my way to help. Even if I can't help them, I at least get them to somebody who can. Addressing people's concerns, addressing people's issues, doing selfless promotion where you're promoting other groups and other organizations and other blogs and trying to help people out and just get the word out has been a huge success on the Facebook side of it. People really appreciate when you go out of your way to help them and you promote other organizations and not just your own. That's that's really appreciated. So that's helped on the Facebook side of it. On the MySpace side, uh, which tends to be more teen-orientated, what they appreciate more is just the links to news and articles and stuff like that. And then on the Twitter side, it's just the Twitter, what we do on Twitter is mostly reference back to Facebook. So, so I don't, you know, the Twitter's not that big of a concern for me. But... AA News, for example, which is the American Atheist News, we put that out everywhere. Um, I send all the information to affiliates online. I put everything on my state director webpage. You know, so the, pre- the, the presence online is vital. You know, one of the things that for the local group, uh, even though we have our own personal webpage now, we've had that for a while, we kept our old meetup site because the meetup site, we still get four or five new members a month through meetup. Just because people still find us through there. That's an incredibly effective advertising tool. Craigslist, Meetup, all those, they, they're incredibly effective. And so the online presence is absolutely vital. The, the more places you're listed, the better off you, you're going to be. Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a Facebook group? Do you have a Facebook fan page if that might work better for you? Do you have um, a MySpace page for the younger people? Well, it seems to me you're saying, you know, we have to diversify our approach online and then you know, try to reach across all different, you know, social media. And- right. The great thing about, like, for example, Twitter is Twitter and Facebook have a, a dual application where anything that you put on your Facebook fan page for your group, like, you know, the Merck the fan page, if you will, 
it's automatically going to put it in Twitter with the link to the Facebook page, direct link. So even if you're not signed up on Facebook, you can still read the note or you can still read the event or whatever that's on the page. So that's uh, that's a really great way to do it. That way you don't really have to maintain the Twitter account. The Twitter account is maintained by your updates on Facebook. So you're knocking out two birds with one stone. So Blair, uh, what are your plans for the future, for the immediate future? Uh, I know that American Atheists has its uh, national convention coming soon. Right, the convention is coming up in April. I'm definitely looking forward to that. It's going to be in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, April 2nd through 4th at the uh, at the hotel up there. It's the... Oh, hell, smells. Oh, the Liberty Renaissance Liberty Hotel. Liberty Renaissance Hotel, yeah. So, yeah, I hope to, uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, ditto, man. It's going to be nice to uh, to finally meet you in person. Yeah, look, the, the convention is always a blast. I love going to the convention. The speakers themselves are obviously amazing. Uh, the way that, that it's set up and the dinners and the award ceremony is always a blast. But I'm going to be honest. My most my most fun part of the convention is the post convention partying. <laughs> yeah. I totally look forward to that. Oh man, we have we get in so much trouble sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> last year we had uh, last year was the first time I got drunk in seven years. It was, yeah, my, my wife had never even seen me drunk, and that was thanks to uh, my my Indian friend Venkat. Yeah. He brought the tequila and we overindulged. It was pretty fun. There were several blogs the day afterwards about the Alabama contention at the American Atheist Convention. <laughs> so I'm hoping to get another big Alabama group up there again this year. We had a really good time. Well, Blair, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, same here. Same here. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Nirmukta Radio. Nirmukta Radio is a production of nirmukta.com. Music is tailored down by Cryptocrat. Please visit the website to support science and free thought in India. Until next week, this is your host Ajita Kamal saying goodbye.